Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Scottsdale Big Book Study, where we will study the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. My name is Maria F., and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater, and I'm from County Dublin here in Ireland. I'll be your host for today's study. Our co-host today are Nancy J., Audrey N., and Sue L. If you have any questions or any concerns during the meeting, you can contact either myself or any of the co-hosts, and you can do this by private message in the chat function. And please note that our speaker today, Harlan G, will be recorded for the duration of the study. However, the Q&A session which follows, that will not be recorded. And we'll post a link to the previous week's recordings in the chat function. We are currently on week number 97. This is week number 97. Please make sure if you can keep your microphones on mute at all times during today's study. And also, if you need to step away from your um, device for any reason, please do disconnect your video because it can be distracting for other members if we have members in the background walking around. And um, we will disable the chat function for the duration of the study. We'll open it up again at about 10 to, well, I'm on Irish time, 10 minutes before we go to Q&A. Um, we'll open it up. So if you have any questions for Harlan, you can post these into the chat function. So now we'll turn over the meeting to Harlan G in Scottsdale, Arizona. Good morning, Harlan. Good morning, Maria. Thank you very much. And I don't know uh, how to thank you and Sue and Nancy and everybody enough for making this possible. We're getting close to 100 of these sessions on scottsdalebigbook.com. Blows my flipping mind that we are at a level like this. This is just a incredible, something that started out at the coffee plantation in Scottsdale, Arizona, with a, a very small handful of people has grown uh, in part because of the pandemic into something like this. It's really, really mind blowing. I hope it's as beautiful and fabulous wherever you are as it is here in Scottsdale today. It's just, it's, it's gonna be in about the high 90s, low hundreds with very low humidity today. And it is just gorgeous. There, the nearest cloud is somewhere out over Nevada and there just isn't any, any more spectacular a day as there is today. Great to be alive. I just wanna remind you before we get started that we're gonna finish May every Saturday. We're gonna have a session in May, but the very first Saturday of June, which I believe is the 4th of June, I am taking this on the road to Los Angeles, California. And I really hope that if you can be in LA that first weekend of June, that you will come and join us in Los Angeles. We're gonna have about 100, 150 people, 120, whatever it is. So I really hope, you know, so many of us are so starved for the contact that we've lost because of the pandemic. And yes, the Zoom meetings are fabulous, but this is gonna give us a chance to maybe Put, put, you know, let our hair down a little bit and just enjoy each other so very much. So if you can make it to Southern California the first weekend of June, it would be outstanding to see you there. And it would be just great for you and great for us too, I hope. So let's get into the chapter. There is a solution. And is as my want I always give us a little bit of a review of last week and a review of the chapter. And we're going to probably, no, we're going to probably, we're going to, we're going to finish the chapter today and we're going to start on uh, the next chapter. But we've got something very special today. I have letters, I have um, communication between Dr. Jung and Bill Wilson. And so we're going to be reading those today, and we're going to do the follow-up on what happened in that very, very special time, 1930, <coughs> excuse me, 1931, when Dr. Jung treated Roland Hazard. But let's go back a little bit, and let's get our rolling start for today's reading. The first thing we notice about this chapter, there is a solution. Now, for thousands and thousands of years, for people like me who are addicted to food, who is a compulsive overeater, 
I'm not an alcoholic. I'm not a drug addict, but there was nowhere for me to go. There was nothing. There was absolutely nowhere to go. And when you were an alcoholic or a drug addict, yes, they had drug addicts hundreds and hundreds of years ago. They fought a war. The Chinese fought a war called the Opium Wars. So they very much had delaudanum. They had opium. They had different drugs that people could and would abuse, different things like that. So I guarantee you there were drug addicts hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago. There was nowhere to go. There was no solution. There were people who preyed on the families of alcoholics. They preyed on the alcoholics themselves by selling them snake oil. These were just quacks that would go from town to town and they would say, take this potion, take this pill, do this, do that. Give me money, give me money, give me money was the real message that they were sending out. And it'll cure your alcoholism or what have you. And of course, it didn't work much in the same way that even today, with all the laws and regulations that we have in place, if you listen to some of these late night infomercials and you go into any drugstore, when you go into a drugstore, what's one of the biggest sections or the biggest section in the drugstore? The weight loss section. Take this pill, take this potion, do this, do this. Go to this gym, go to that gym, do this, do that. And, you know, they'll sell you and here comes some doctor or here comes some nutritionist. And they're going to tell you that by drinking fish oil, or they're going to tell you that by drinking the, the, uh, the uh, blood of a bat or what God knows what you're going to be cured and you're going to lose weight. And it's just as simple as this. And you can eat everything you want and you can ride your horse on the beach. And of course, for people like us, none of that is true. No matter what diet you see, they all work. And if we were normal eaters, they would work for us too. And for a while, even for people like us, they worked beautifully. We lost weight. But then invariably, because of the buildup of human emotion and because the emotional buildup was there and because the trials and the tribulations of life were there, we could not stay out of the food for appreciable lengths of time. And when we get into the next chapter, more about alcoholism, we're going to see just how that mechanism works. But let's go back to there is a solution. Now, also, the title of the chapter sometimes could be read by me as there is a solution. Now, I know that some of you hear all the time, there's a million ways to do step 10 and 2 million ways to do step 11 and 7 million ways to do step well, whatever that is you hear, I am a very simple person, not the sharpest tool in the shed, not the brightest bulb in the chandelier by any stretch of the imagination. So I need things kept very simple for me. And a very, very wise man on a freezing cold Chicago day, a day very different from the one that we're having here in Arizona and Scottsdale today, he told me something very, very important. And I love calling upon this because it helps me. What he said to me, and this was outside the Lincoln Park Alano Club over off of uh, Dickens and Armitage there in Chicago. He said something to me. He said, if it's complicated, if it's really hard, you're probably doing it wrong. He said, this is a real simple, simple program. Don't get hung up don't get hung up in difficulties, complexities. And Dr. Bob, in his last public talk, which happened in 1950 in Cleveland, Ohio, they were having their convention. And the Akron people said, well, we'll have the convention, but we're not going to New York with you high steppers. And the New York people said, well, we'll have our convention, but we're not going to Akron with all you backwoods goofballs. We're not going to Akron. So they compromised. And the first convention in 1950 
was in Cleveland, Ohio. That was their compromise. And Dr. Bob was already stricken with cancer at that time. And Dr. Bob was helped to the podium by his son, Smitty, and another alcoholic. And he said, let's keep this simple. He said, at the very last, this boils down to love and service. And he, he instructed us not to allow this to be comp, uh, complicated. These, complex, these com complex theories are only of interest to the psychologist, the clinician. He said, let's keep this simple. And at the very last, he said, it boils down to love and service. So in keeping with what Dr. Bob said, if it's not simple, if I have to make a hundred choices or want any choices, that's not a good thing for me. I want it laid out. And the big book lays out how to do each step for me. There are not 10 ways to do this step and eight ways to do that step. There's one way for me. If you have other ways of doing it that are working for you, God bless you. I hope you will continue doing what works. I can only share what works and doesn't work for me. He also said, let's keep on guard for that erring member among us, the tongue. Let's use it judiciously because no man looks better in God's eyes than we, when he is bent over to help another suffering alcoholic, that that alcoholic may now stand on the rung of the ladder that he now occupies. And we get our responsibility pledge coming to mind. What is that responsibility pledge? To be the outstretched hand of Alcoholics Anonymous to those who urgently seek it. For this, I am responsible. And as we move through the chapter, there is a solution. We find on 23, the main problem of the alcoholic centers in his mind rather than in his body, which is very important. We're not going to talk about the food anymore. We're going to talk about the spiritual awakening that will dispel the urge to kill ourselves with food. And then we're taught in this chapter too, that abstinence is a bare beginning, that a further demonstration lie ahead in our working of the steps in all of that we must practice these principles. What are the principles? The principles are the steps that we must practice these principles in all of our affairs. And this is where the recovery is. This is where you fly. And this is important for me to remember that it is not just about abstinence. It's about the spiritual transformation that the steps alone can bring about. And abstinence does not treat this disease. Abstinence is a very, very vital uh, component. And without abstinence, there is no recovery. But abstinence alone does not, will not treat this disease. If abstinence treated the disease, then we would go on diets and the abstinence, the abstaining that we exercise during the diets would dispel the illness, but they don't, they don't. And so we see on page, we're going to start on page 28 when we get rolling here, but we see on page 26, the meeting that took place in 1931 between Roland Hazard and um, uh, Dr. Jung. We see that if he had gotten to Freud, then we would not have a program because Freud and Adler, Freud and Adler believed that all solution lie within the mind. Adler did a lot of work on birth order. He did a lot of work on other things, but the spiritual part of things was not something that these guys investigated. They were not invested in that. And Jung believed, thank God, thank God, thank God, thank God, Jung believed that here and there, a spiritual experience could help someone alter their ideas, 
thoughts and attitudes and that this could be a help. And this is what he's going to arm Roland Hazard with as Roland armed with this one thing that might help him is now going to go back to the, um, to America. He's going to land in New York city and he is not going to seek out a traditional church. He's going to seek out a group of people practicing first century Christianity to the best of their ability, and they are called the Oxford Groupers. And if you listen to the podcast that I did on Bill's story, on the bottom of page eight, I give you the entire history of how the Oxford Group ideas came into our program. And this might be something that you may want to consider re-listening to by going to scottsdalebigbook.com. That's just simply scottsdalebigbook.com. But let's go to page 28 at the top and let's pick up from where we are this week. And we're going to see on page 28, we're going to see what happens now. Here was the terrible dilemma. I'm at the top of 28, fourth edition in which our friend found himself when he had the extraordinary experience, which as we have already told you, made him a free man. He's talking about Roland. He doesn't name Roland in the book. He does not name Roland. And by the way, as an aside to this day, the Hazard family has never released the true details of Roland's death. We do not know if he died of his alcoholism because we do know that although there were rumors that he came into program in France, we don't have any solid evidence to suggest that he ever did come into program. We don't know that, but it doesn't matter. He did his job. He was part and parcel and very integral to bringing the message of the spiritual uh, component to our program. All right. We in turn sought the same escape with all the desperation of drowning men. Now I'm going to pick that sentence apart a little bit. If you've ever been underwater a little too long, you get this, oh my God, I've got to take a breath. You're not worried about the color of the life preserver. You're not worried about whatever. You just want breath in your lungs. And this is the only thing that matters. And this is the attitude that I must take every single day when I approach my recovery. Because if I'm going to approach my recovery from anything less than this drowning man persona, I am probably not going to do the work. I'm probably not going to do the work because I don't see the point. I still think maybe in the back of my mind, oh, I can handle this myself. Oh, I'm okay. Oh, I don't have to quite do this much. I can only do less, whatever that may be. I must approach this with the desperation of a drowning man. Let's continue. What seemed at first a flimsy read has proved to be the loving and powerful hand of God. A new life has been given us, or if you prefer, a design for living that really works. And this is a design for living. If this was just about the food, it wouldn't work. It would be just another diet. And unfortunately, there are people who treat OA like it was just another diet. They hear us talking about the steps. They hear us talking about different things. And in their mind, just give me the darn food plan and let me go with that. And that's not going to work for anyone. I must embrace this as a way of life. And I must understand that for me, this is a design for living that works in rough going because things are going to happen. Good things, bad things. That's only a perception of the mind and the ego. Nothing is good or bad. It is only my ego that makes that so. So I am not in the business, hopefully, of judging whether it's good or bad or indifferent. But when these emotions come up and that thought comes like, oh my God, what am I going to do now? 
I have to do a 10 step. I have to do step 10. Very, very important. No matter how evolved my recovery gets, I will never rise above the level of human being. And as a human being, people are going to get me angry. People are going to scare me. People are going to act in a way that is not sticking to my script. And when they don't stick to my script, it's going to alarm me. It's going to make me mad. It's going to scare me. Let's continue. I'm on page 28. The distinguished American psychologist William James in his book, Varieties of Religious Experience, indicates a multitude of ways in which men have discovered God. The Varieties of Religious Experience by William James is one of the four books that framed this book that was very influential. When I say it framed it, what I mean, it was highly influential. We're going to be talking about another book very soon, and it's called The um, Common Sense of Drinking. And the man that wrote The Common Sense of Drinking is a man by the name of Richard Peabody. We're going to be talking about that today, too. But let's go back to the varieties of religious experience. In 1901 in Glasgow, Scotland, in Edinburgh, Scotland, sorry, in Edinburgh, Scotland, there is a university there where they invited a bunch of psychologists to give speeches. And these psychologists in 1901 gave a bunch of speeches about how men or women, but they primarily men, discovered God. See if this sounds familiar. They talked about what they were like, what happened, and what they're like now after their spiritual experience, their, their conversion. So William James put all these lectures, put all these talks into a book called The Varieties of Religious Experience. It's tedious reading. It's very, very tough reading. It's tough going. But then you get to some of these stories that are quite fascinating. And by the way, because of this book, The Varieties of Religious Experience, this is why you have the stories in the back of the big book. This is where the inspiration came so that Bill Wilson put stories, personal stories, in the back of the big book. And now there are 42 of them. There were, I believe, 24 of them. Now there's 42 of them. And these personal stories give us identification. They give us a way of, of understanding a little bit better when we can see the steps and see the program through the eyes of the people who suffer from alcoholism. Very, very important. Let's continue. We have no desire to convince anyone that there is only one way by which faith can be acquired. Very important. Now, I just got through saying that there's only one way to work the steps for me. Maybe you have other ways, but we are not here to tell people that this is the way that they must find God. I can share with you in finding God, I can share with you what worked for me, but I can't share with you what will work for you. You have to go out there and you have to find God in your way, on your time, and whatever God that is that you believe in, that's what you are free to believe in, and that's fine. If what we have learned and felt and seen means anything at all, it means that all of us, whatever our race, creed, or color, are the children of a living creator with whom we may form a relationship upon simple and understandable terms as soon as we are willing and honest enough to try. And when we talk about that relationship with God for me, what that means is that love and faith are verbs. I have to take action. I have to stop waiting for faith and willingness to hit me. And I have to take action. And the easiest way for me to find God, the easiest way for me to find God is in the face of one of his children. And when I look for God in the face of one of his children, I never fail to find that he is there. What do I mean by that? Help another person. As much as I want to be helped, as much as I want to feel sorry for myself, as much as I want the help, I have to give the help rather than receive the help in order to find God. It is imperative for me that I recognize the fact that of my own, I am a 
very selfish, very, very immature, very demanding baby. I am like a baby. I'm just like little Carl. If you, when you, when Johan opens his camera, you have to look at it. His little one and a half year old Carl is sitting on his lap. I'm just like Carl. I want this and I want that and I want her and I want those and I want it and I want them. No, 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 no. That's not the way the world is. That's not the way the world is, number one. Number two, that's not how, that's not the path to recovery. That is the road to Doritoville. That is not the path of recovery for me. And yet my ego says, oh, but I deserve it. And my recovery says, you deserve better than that. You deserve better than that. There is no friction among us over such matters. Oh, those having religious affiliation, sorry, will find here nothing disturbing to their beliefs or ceremonies. There is no friction among us over such matters. Whatever you believe in, whomever you believe in is fine. The only thing that is important is that you be willing. Nobody says you have to believe. The only important thing is that you be willing to believe that there is a power greater than yourself. And as long as you're willing to believe that there is a power greater than yourself, then you are on your way as nothing more is required. You just have to be willing to believe that there is a power greater than yourself. And so as I look around the world, no matter how ego driven, no matter what kind of ego madness is in my heart and in my head, can I look around at this world? And yes, there are horrible things going on. And they've been going on for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. There's wars and pestilence and injustices that are going on. And here's what I learned. I learned that God gave humans free will. He didn't create a bunch of robots. He didn't create a bunch of cyborgs, half human, half robot, that lacked free will, that lacked choice. He put a bunch of humans on this earth and these human beings, including me, there's Carl. That's about how old I am emotionally, about a year and a half old. See how cute he is? But anyway, if you look at Johan's um, uh, little Hollywood square there, there's little Carl. He's not feeling very well today. But anyway, the bottom line is, is that he didn't put a bunch of robots here. He put a bunch of people. And as people, we have free will. And some people use their free will to do terrible things, terrible things. They make ugly, bad decisions. And do I know why certain children have horrible diseases and kitty cats die and puppies die and there's disease and there's this? Why this one? Why my mom? Why my dad? Why my children? Why? I don't have explanations for any of that. And I will not pretend that I do. But here's what I learned, and I'll share it with you today. I can either live because, in spite of that or die because of it. I can live in spite of those injustices or die because of it. If I, and this is the, 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 the slavery issue the racial prejudice issue, rape, date rape, molestation, the Holocaust. These are the most common things that I hear every day. How can I believe God, in God if, and then you can fill in the blank. I'm going to give you an explanation. I don't know. And you can either live in spite of that or die because of that. Let me share something with you. If I thought that me eating ice cream and pizza would bring back one victim of the Holocaust or resurrect the soul of one person that was enslaved for their entire life or even part of their life, forget about their entire life, part of their, a, a minute of their life, if they were the chattel property of another person, if I could change that, I would go eat ice cream and pizza and die and change that and hope that the person would come back resurrected or the Holocaust victim would come back resurrected and that the justice would be served. I would do it. I would do it. I would. I promise you I would do it. But 
it doesn't it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. And by the way, I'll be damned if I'm going to let Hitler kill one more Jew. If I die in the food because of the Holocaust, then I'm letting Hitler kill one more Jew. And I'm not giving the son of a bitch the satisfaction of it. I will not do it. So we can live in spite of this or die because of this. The choice is ours. The program is there. We must work it with the desperation of drowning men. Very important. I'm on 28 toward the bottom. We think it no concern of ours what religious bodies our, member, our members identify themselves with as individuals. This should be an entirely personal affair, which each one decides for himself in the light of past associations or his present choice. Not all of us join religious bodies, but most of us favor such memberships. You don't want to join an organized religion? That's fine. You want to join an organized religion? You're already in an organized religion? That's fine. But that's a little different than your spiritual life. This is a little different. This is going to be a little different. In the following chapter, there appears an explanation of alcoholism as we understand it. Then a chapter addressed to the agnostic. Many who once were in this class are now among our members. Surprisingly enough, we find such convictions no great obstacle to a spiritual experience. Further on, clear-cut directions are given showing how we recovered. There's that word recovered. What's the number two question on a vision for you? Number one being, can I be heard? Can I be heard? Can I be heard? And number two is, what's the difference between recovered and recovering? If you listen to vision meetings, this is the number two question asked. There's the word recovered. It doesn't say cured. It says recovered. These are followed by 42 personal experiences, 42. Each individual in the personal stories describes in his own language and from his own point of view, the way he established his relationship with God. These give a fair cross section of our membership and a clear cut idea of what has actually happened in their lives. We hope no one will consider these self-revealing accounts in bad taste. Our hope is that many alcoholic men and women desperately in need will see these pages. And we believe that it is only by fully disclosing ourselves and our problems that they too must be persuaded to say, yes, I am one of them too. I must have this thing. And I have been suffering from this disease in my entire life. My entire life is absolutely proof, absolute proof that my thinking, my will, my activities are insufficient to bring about any type of recovery at all whatsoever. It is not going to happen. I am not going to recover on my own unaided willpower. Now, before we get into more about alcoholism, I thought it would be kind of a treat for you guys to hear something. And this happened in 1961, 10 years, almost to the date that Bill passed away. Bill died on January 24th, 1971. And this letter from, from Bill to Jung was written January the 23rd, 1961, almost 10 years to the day that Bill Wilson was to pass away. And what I would like to do is read for you the letter. Now, Bill Wilson and Dr. Bob uh, got AA going in 1935. Now, Dr. Bob was not originally recognized as a co-founder. Ebby, Hank Parkhurst, Fitz Mayo, these were guys that were all in the running. But Ebby drank and Hank Parkhurst drank. But it wasn't really until 1938, three years after the fact, that Dr. Bob was recognized as the co-founder of AA. It wasn't like an immediate thing. 
So I just want to let you know that it was not like an immediate, oh, Dr. Bob and Bill, they're the co-founders. As a matter of fact, as the book project was moving forward, there was a rumor in Akron that Bill and Bob were pulling a scam, a money-making scam, and that they had known each other for years and that Dr. Bob and Bill had to dispel these rumors as false because they, it just simply was not true. But let's go back to Dr. Jung. Dr. Jung treated Roland Hazard in 1931. This is um, 1961. And here is the letter that Bill Wilson writes to Carl Jung. My dear Dr. Jung, this letter of great appreciation has been long overdue. May I first introduce myself as Bill W., a co-founder of the Society of Alcoholics Anonymous. Though you have surely heard of us, I doubt if you are aware that a certain, con a certain conversation you once had with one of your patients, a Roland H., back in the early 1930s did play a critical role in the founding of our fellowship. Though Roland H. has long since passed away, the recollection of his remarkable experience under, while under treatment by you has definitely become part of AA history. Our remembrance of Roland H.'s statements about his experience with you is as follows. Having exhausted other means of recovery from his alcoholism, it was about 1931 that he became your patient. I believe he remained under your care for perhaps a year. His admiration for you was boundless, boundless, and he left you with a feeling of much confidence. To his great consternation, he soon relapsed into intoxication. Certain that you were his court of last resort, he again returned to your care. Then followed the conversion between you, <clears throat> then followed the, con the conversation between you that was to become the first link in the chain of events that led to the founding of Alcoholics Anonymous. My recollection of his account of that conversation is this. First of all, you frankly told him of the hopelessness so far as any further medical or psychiatric treatment might be concerned. This candid and humble statement of yours was beyond doubt the first foundation stone upon which our society has been built. Coming from you, one he so trusted and admired, the impact on him was immense. When he, when he then asked you if there was any other hope, you told him that there might be, provided he could become the subject of a spiritual or religious experience. In short, a genuine conversion. You pointed out how such an experience, if brought about, might re-motivate re him when nothing else could. But you did caution, though, that while such experiences had sometimes brought recovery to alcoholics, they were nevertheless comparatively rare. You recommended that he place himself in a religious atmosphere and hope for the best. This, I believe, was the substance of your advice. Shortly thereafter, Mr. H joined the Oxford Group, an evangelical movement then at the height of its success in Europe and one with which you are doubtless familiar. You will remember their large emphasis upon the principles of self-survey, confession, restitution, and the giving of oneself in service to others. They strongly stressed meditation and prayer. In these surroundings, Roland H. did find a conversion experience that released him for the time being that from his compulsion to drink. Returning to New York, he became very active in the Oxford group here, then led by an Episcopal clergyman, Dr. Sam Shoemaker. Dr. Shoemaker has been one of the founders of that movement, and this was a powerful personality that carried immense sincerity and conviction. At this time, 1932 to 1934, the Oxford group had already sobered a number of alcoholics. And Roland, feeling that he could especially identify with these sufferers, addressed himself to the help of still others. One of these chanced to be an old schoolmate of mine named Edwin T. Ebby 
he had been treated, he had been threatened with, he had been threatened with commitment to an institution. But Mr. H and another ex-alcoholic, and this is an Oxford grouper whose name was Sebra Graves Jr. Again, see back to my um, podcast on Bill's story and you'll hear the story again. This is Sebra Graves Jr. he's talking about. Procured his parole and helped bring about his sobriety. Meanwhile, I had run the course of alcoholism and was threatened with commitment myself. Fortunately, I had fallen under the care of a physician, Dr. William D. Silkworth, who was wonderfully capable of understanding alcoholics, but just as you had given up on Roland, so had he given up on me. It was his theory that alcoholism had two components, an obsession that compelled the sufferer to drink against his will and interest and some sort of metabolism difficulty, which he then called an allergy. The alcoholic's compulsion guaranteed that the alcoholic's drinking would go on and the allergy made sure that the sufferer would finally deteriorate, go insane or die. Though I had been one of the few he had thought it possible to help, he was finally obliged to tell me of my hopelessness. I too would have to be locked up to me, this was a shattering blow. Just as Roland had been made ready for his conversion experience by you, so my wonderful friend, Dr. Silkworth, prepared me. Hearing of my plight, my friend Edwin Thatcher, Ebby Thatcher, came to see me at my home where I was drinking. By then, it was November 1934. I had long marked my friend Edwin for a hopeless case Yet here he was in a very evident state of release, which could by no means be accounted for by his mere association for a very long time with the Oxford group. Yet this obvious state of release as distinguished from the usual depression was tremendously convincing. Because he had, was a kindred sufferer, he could unquestionably communicate with me at great depth. I knew at once I must find an experience like his or die. I'm just going to interrupt this for just a second. In order for this message to be carried, it must have depth and weight. We go over this again and again and again. There are certain things that compulsive overeaters know, certain things that we taste, that we smell, that we think. There are certain experiences of our lives relative to this, this eating thing that you cannot get by reading them in a book. In order for the message to be carried, it must have depth and weight. And Ebby was not only an alcoholic, he was an alcoholic known to Bill Wilson. Bill Wilson often said, if I ever get to be as bad a drunk as Ebby, I'm going to quit. And Ebby would run around saying, if I ever get to be as bad a drunk as Bill Wilson, I'm going to quit. So Ebby became the perfect messenger of the message. He became the perfect conduit of the message. That's what I meant to say. He became the perfect conduit of the message because only an alcoholic can help an alcoholic. Dr. Silkworth could treat Bill's medical issues. He could treat his uh, gastritis. He could treat Bill's uh, uh, medical issues. But Dr. Silkworth, he cannot treat Bill's alcoholism. He told him what was wrong. He told him what the story was, but he had no solution for that. His solution was, Lois, you're going to have to either put him in an insane asylum or he's going to die. That was his solution. He had nothing else. He had nothing else. Let's continue with this letter. I know we're not, we may not get to chapter three, but I just felt like bringing this letter to us. I hope I'm right. I, I hope that by bringing this letter, it sort of gives you sort of a window into some of our history. And I hope you're appreciating it. Again, I returned to Dr. Silkworth's care where I could be one where I could be once more sobered and again gain a clearer view of my friend's experience of release and of Roland H.'s approach to him. Clear once more of alcohol, 
I found myself terribly depressed. This seemed to be caused by my inability to gain the slightest faith. Ed, Edwin T., Edwin Thatcher, Ebby, again visited me and repeated the simple Oxford group formulas. Soon after he left me, I became even more depressed. And in utter despair, I cried out, if there is a God, will he show himself? There immediately came to me an illumination of enormous impact and dimension, something which I have since tried to describe in the book, Alcoholics Anonymous, and also in AA Comes of Age, basic text, which I am sending you. So he sent uh, Dr. Jung a copy of the big book, and he sends him a copy of AA Comes of Age. Can you imagine what that autographed copy of Bill Wilson sending to, could you imagine what that is worth? If he wrote in there to Dr. Jung, thank you for everything you did, or thank you for whatever, sincerely yours, Bill Wilson. Could you just imagine what that thing would fetch on the, you could probably get somewhere in the neighborhood of a million dollars for that. There's going to be someone that'll give you a million bucks for that if you can get your hands on it, but I don't know how you do that. All right, let's continue. I hope you're enjoying this. I know I enjoyed it, and I hope I'm right not to get right to chapter three, but to bring this in. I hope I'm right. My release from the alcohol obsession was immediate at once I knew I was a free man. And this is going back to Bill's description of the spiritual experience that he had in the town's hospital that is described on page 14. And this is where the, the light, I think it's 13 or 14. I, and the light fills the room. And that went, and he calls Silkworth over and Silkworth says, whatever it is, you hang on to it. It's better than the way you were. Shortly afterward, <clears throat> following my experience, my friend Ebby, my friend Edwin came to the hospital bringing me a copy of William James, The Varieties of Religious Experience. This book gave me the realization that most conversion experiences, whatever their variety, do have a common denominator of ego collapse at depth. The individual faces an impossible dilemma. In my case, the dilemma had been created by my compulsive drinking and the deep feeling of hopelessness had been vastly deepened still more by my alcoholic friend when he acquainted me with your verdict of hopelessness respecting Roland H. So we have a situation there where we have a conversion and he's describing this spiritual experience that he had in the town's hospital. In the wake of my spiritual experience, there came a vision of a society of alcoholics. Does that sound familiar? What is it that we have today? We have what? We have a society of alcoholics, okay? A society called Alcoholics Anonymous each identifying with and transmitting his experience to the next, step 12. Chain style, step 12. If each sufferer were to carry the news of the scientific hopelessness of alcoholism to each new prospect, he might be able to lay every newcomer wide open to a transforming spiritual experience. This concept proved to be the foundation of such success as Alcoholics Anonymous has since achieved. This has made conversion experience, nearly every variety reported by James, available on almost wholesale basis. Our sustained recoveries over the last quarter century number about 300,000 in America and, those, and through the world. There are today 8,000 AA groups. This is written in 1961. So to you, to Dr. Shoemaker of the Oxford Group, to William James, and to my own physician, Dr. Silkworth, we of AA own this tremendous benefaction. As you will now clearly see, this astonishing chain of events actually started long ago in your consulting room, and it was directly founded upon your own humility and deep perception. Though many thoughtful AAs are students of your writings, because of your conviction, that man is something more than intellect. 
emotion, and $2 worth of chemicals, you have especially endeared yourself to us. How our society grew, developed its traditions for unity, and structured its functioning will be seen in the text and pamphlet material that I am sending you. You will also be interested to learn that in addition to the spiritual experience, many AAs report a great variety of psychic phenomenon, the cumulative weight of which is very considerable. Other members have following their recovery in AA been helped much by your practitioners. A few have been intrigued by the I Ching, I don't know what that means, and your remarkable introduction to that work. Please be certain that your place in the affection and the history of our fellowship is like no other. Gratefully yours, William G. Wilson. Wow, wow, wow. You see, God in his infinite wisdom knew just who to put into position. Sometimes we read the history or when we first come in, we see this history of Bill and Bob in Akron. And we think that Bill met Bob and Bob met Bill. And all of a sudden, AA, as we know it today, sprung out their nose. Nothing could be further from the truth. The society had many, um, many fathers. You can Some put the flowers on the front porch. So we have many, many mothers and fathers. There are many people whose lives whose passion came to fruition to build and create what we have today. Very, very important. Now, rather than start chapter three, which I would love to do, I would like to read the letter that Dr. Jung will now send back to Bill Wilson. And this letter is January 30th, six days later, seven days later. This letter is dated January the 30th, 1961. And this is a letter to Bill Wilson, and it is written by Dr. Carl Jung. Let's take a look at what Dr. Jung has to say. Dear Mr. Wilson, your letter has been very welcome indeed. I had no news from Roland Hazard anymore and often wondered what had been his fate. Our conversation, which he has adequately reported to you, had an, had an aspect of which he did not know. The reason that I could not tell him everything was that those days I had to be exceedingly careful of what I said. I had found out that I was misunderstood in every possible way. Thus, I was very careful when I talked to Roland H., but what I really thought about was the result of many experiences with men of his kind. His craving for alcohol was the equivalent on a low level of the spiritual thirst of our being for wholeness expressed in medieval language and the union with God. How could one formulate such an insight in a language that is not misunderstood in our days? The only right and legitimate way to such an experience is that it happens to you in reality, and it can only happen to you when you walk on a path which leads you to higher understanding. You might be led to that goal by an act of grace or through a personal or an honest contact with friends or through a higher education of the mind beyond the confines of mere rationalism. I see from your letter that Roland H. has chosen the second way, which was under under the circumstances, obviously the best one. I am strongly convinced that the evil principle prevailing in this world leads the unrecognized spiritual need into perdition if it is not counteracted by either the real religious insight or the protective wall of human community. An ordinary man not protected by an action from above and isolated in society cannot resist the power of evil which is called very aptly the devil. But the use of such word arouses so many mistakes that one can only keep aloof from them as much as possible. 
There are reasons why I could not give a full and sufficient explanation to Roland Hazard, but I am risking it with you because I conclude from your very decent and honest letter that you have acquired a point of view above the misleading platitudes one usually hears about alcoholism. You see, alcohol in Latin is spiritus, and you use the same word for the highest religious experience as well as the most depraving poison. The helpful formula therefore is spiritus contra spiritum. Thanking you again for your kind letter, I remain sincerely Dr. Carl G. Jung. And as the heart panteth after the water brooks, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. My heartfelt thanks to the AA Grapevine for originally publishing these letters in 1963 and for generously allowing us to retell them here. Special thanks to David Shane for bringing this material to our attention. You can hear Mr. Shane discuss these letters often. So I hope that this is something which illuminates for each and every one of you this exchange between Bill Wilson and Dr. Jung. And Dr. Jung will die not long after this exchange of letters. Dr. Jung will not live very long after that. And Bill Wilson will die January 24th, 1971. So we have these letters to illustrate, but more than illustrate, it confirms the AA history of what happened between Roland and Dr. Jung. I hope that it was helpful for you. Now, we're going to discuss chapter three in the beginning of chapter three, very in depth next week. And I want to just remind you that this is a chapter that this is the chapter that is the last of the chapters. That's what I'm trying to say. It is the last of the chapters that will concern itself with step number one. And this chapter is going to be very heavily influenced by a book. Now I've already told you about the varieties of religious experience, but we're going to, there's four books that were heavily influential in the big book. They are again, the book of James, New Testament, the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount is the number two book. And that's by Emmett Fox, sorry. And the third one is, is uh, the varieties of, varieties of Religious Experience, Sermon on the Mount, book of James. And the fourth one is the Common Sense of Drinking. The Common Sense of Drinking was written in 1930 by Richard Peabody. I am not telling you to read the book. I'm, I'm, I'm just telling you our history. So please don't say to me in the end, oh, you're bringing in this and it's not conference approved literature. Without these books, there is no big book. So I'm giving you the history. I'm giving you the background on the book that we use every day. Now, this book, More About Alcoholism, had a lot of stuff in it that was not right. He had in there that if you change your environment or you change your, your job or you change your friends or you move or whatever, that this could cure your alcoholism and nothing could be further from the truth. But there were three basic concepts, three basic concepts that Peabody had perfectly right. What are they? And we're going to go over this again next week. What are those three concepts? Number one, this disease is permanent. There is no cure for alcoholism. There's no cure for compulsive overeating. Once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. And this is one of the toughest concepts to pound into the brain of the compulsive overeater, alcoholic, drug addict, what have you. We are cured. Hey, we've lost the weight. And because see, everybody has told us that if you just lose the weight, everything's going to be rosy. Nothing could be further from the truth. We lost the weight and we felt horrible. 
We felt horrible. They would say to us, don't eat so much. You're going to feel better. Man, they were right. When I don't eat so much and I'm not working the steps, I feel anger better. I feel fear better. I feel crushes on girls better. I feel afraid of girls better. I feel all these things much, much better. And in my zeal, in my enthusiasm to live my life, I cannot get past these feelings and I eat to quash the feelings because I cannot stand the buildup of the emotions and food becomes the answer to my problem. Food was my best friend because it made those emotions go away. It worked like a charm and it made me feel better for about nine seconds. Now, again, just to review, four books. Oh, wait, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. What are the other two concepts that Peabody brings into the fold? Okay, we know about permanent. Once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. But this concept, this middle concept is so key that we look for it in Bill's story. We're going to look for it in more about alcoholism. And we talk about it in our own lives. And what is that? That the disease is progressive. What does that mean, progressive? Well, it means that no matter what your situation, as you age, you are going to get worse and worse and worse and worse unless you have a spiritual awakening as the result of the steps. The disease is permanent. The disease is progressive. Here's the last one. The disease is, if untreated by a spiritual awakening, it is fatal. You will die in the disease, permanent, progressive, and fatal. I have a man, uh, he's a good friend of mine. He lives in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And he says that the disease is permanent, progressive, and fatal because he likes to say the three Ps because it's easier for him to remember the three Ps than it is permanent, progressive, and fatal. Permanent, once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. We're going to read the story of a man who remained bone dry for 25 years. 25 years he remained bone dry, and yet he'll be dead in four. So the disease is permanent, progressive, and fatal. Come back next week. Bring a friend. Come back next week, and we're going to discuss the beginning part chapter three, and we are going to shine a beacon of light on the last chapter that is about step number one, step number one. Okay, Maria, before I turn it back to you, here is what I'm going to tell you.